Good morning, everyone. Um, my name is Josh. I'm one of the, the leaders here at Christchurch. Um, and they say that when a child learns how to ride a balance bike, um, when they get used to how it feels to be on two wheels, when they get used to stopping and starting and um, knowing how to steer one of these things, and especially when they get used to balancing, well, they say that that child, when it comes to actually riding a real bike, um, their experience of that is deeper. Instead of approaching a real bike in frustration, um, working out it all for the first time, that, that child is able to really enjoy going on a real bike. They're able to understand things and adapt to it a lot quicker. And their experience of riding a real bike is really going to be deepened. Well, we're wired like that as human beings, that when we understand a pattern of something, when we get used to a pattern of how something works, and that really helps us to engage more deeply with the real thing. And at Christchurch, we really want to introduce everybody to Jesus. He's the real thing. He's the one who we want everyone to know and grow in and adore more and more. And there's so many things about Jesus that it's just so hard to get our heads around. So many amazing things. And so we are able, actually, to use what the Bible has given us. Lots and lots of balance bikes, lots and lots of patterns that occur in the Old Testament, the first part of the Bible, way back in history. Uh, the Bible gives us lots and lots of patterns that we can actually come to terms with a lot of what will come to be the real thing later on in Jesus. And so for that reason, uh, we are doing a little mini-series interspersed with our regular series um, on a Sunday morning. Um, a little mini-series of focusing particularly on one pattern in the Old Testament that is introducing us to something about Jesus. And we're going to spend time looking at one of those patterns and as we come to do that, it will help us, just like a balance bike, it will help us to actually encounter Jesus in a deeper um, and a fresher way when we actually encounter him and as the real thing. So today, we're going to be looking at um, a pattern in the Old Testament that concerns a guy called Moses. We're going to be looking at um, an episode in the Old Testament about Moses, and we're going to see that Jesus is a true and better Moses. And hopefully, by studying the pattern today, um, your experience of the real thing of Jesus will be even deeper and fuller. So I'm going to hand over to Nicole, who's going to bring us a reading, which is going to be based in the Old Testament, and it'll be all about an episode in the life of Moses. So hand over to Nicole. She'll tell you where to find the reading, and she'll lead it. Um, if anyone would like a church Bible, if you raise your hand, the stewards will bring one. And today's passage is from Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 to 16. And if you're using a church Bible, it's on page 75. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joseph, uh, Joshua, choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered. And make sure that Joshua hears it, because I will completely blot out the name of Melech from under, the, from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. 
He said, because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. Great. Thank you so much, Nicole. Um, Do keep that passage open. We're going to be uh, spending a lot of time there uh, this morning. Um, And as we do that, because we believe this is the word of God, um, it is what he speaks to us, then we're going to ask for his help in coming to it. So let me pray. Dear Father, we pray that as we look at your people, Israel, from years ago, and as we look at Moses from ancient times, you would kindle in us a greater love for Jesus. We pray that you'd help us see that Jesus is a true and better Moses. He is Moses all over again, but better and for us. And we pray that we would respond in faith and obedience to seeing Jesus in greater glory this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, It's worth saying that if you want to follow along to what I'm saying, um, there is a written English copy and um, a written Farsi copy available online um, on our website, which is christchurchliverpool.org forward slash the word transcript. Um, There, there are links and you're able to access um, an English or a Farsi written copy. I'm afraid I didn't do any uh, paper copies today. That was my fault. So if you're looking for one of those, there aren't any paper ones, but you can still follow along uh, by reading along online. Well, um, every single uh, Wednesday, uh, I lead a group of students who are uh, studying theology. And I don't teach them, but I just help them with their studies. And when it comes to the summer, that group of students will have some exams. And there's a strange situation that sometimes my students find themselves in when it comes to their final exam. Because some of the time, they have done really quite well in all of their other exams and assignments. And they know that with one exam left, they know that they've got good results in all of the other exams and assignments, that if you add up all of those results... They've done enough, not only to pass the course, but to get a really good mark. So they've got one exam left, but they know they've already done enough. They've already got all they need to get a really good mark. They don't even need to turn up to the last exam. Except there is a rule that says you can't pass the course unless you at least pass every exam. So they're in a strange tension, where on the one hand, they know everything's sorted. They know that um, they've got all they need to pass the course because they've got such good results. The pressure is well and truly off, and things should be plain sailing. But on the other hand, they've still got to arrive and work hard and revise and uh, engage with the questions and do a good job. There's a tension of knowing things are all sorted... It's all done, and that can't be taken away, versus having to arrive and enter into a struggle. And that's a tension that you might find yourself in as well if you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, you'd say that you're a Christian because you believe in Jesus. You believe that he lived a perfect life on your behalf. So you don't need to live up to being good. And he died for all the things you've done wrong. So you've got no punishment to fear. If you're a Christian, that's what you'd say. You'd say everything is sorted by Jesus. My whole hope rests on Jesus. It's all on Jesus. Everything is in Jesus. And as long as he came and lived and died, then I'm I'm fine. I'm secure. 
Now, if you put it like that, you might think the Christian life is plain sailing. The pressure's off. You don't need to worry. But if you're a Christian, you know there's that tension that every single day is a struggle. It may be that that struggle for you is a struggle on the outside from people living in a world where people uh, really don't take seriously the things you stake your life on, where people patronize your beliefs and think that you believe in myths and fairy tales. It might be that the struggle is just trying to talk to people who really want to to undermine your faith, who will think you'll grow out of it one day, maybe even people who will treat you with suspicion um, or even get angry at the things you believe. And that's not a small struggle. I know that that struggle, when it's happening daily, when you feel just so marginalized and alienated, it can really get in your mind and you can think, am I really believing the right thing? Maybe I am just completely stupid. And it can discourage you and crush you so that you might feel like one day it's just not worth the struggle anymore. And you want to let go of the struggle and let go of Jesus. Or it might be that that struggle is a struggle on the inside. A struggle with, yes, I know Jesus has forgiven me for everything I've done wrong. But I'm still trapped in cycles and patterns of wrongdoing, of sin, of selfishness. I can't seem to shake my habit of pride or of lust. And every single day there's a temptation to push down anger, but you give in to it. And you find yourself being a failure every single day. And every day is a struggle. And you feel like one day maybe you're just going to say, it's not worth the struggle. and I'm going to give up on that and let go of Jesus. So there's that tension that Christians often feel. And maybe you feel this as well. On the one hand, you say, as a Christian, everything is sorted and I've got nothing to fear. On the other hand, every single day is a struggle. Well, to help us in that tension, uh, we can turn to the pattern in the Bible of Israel in the Old Testament. Let me introduce you to the people of Israel. For, for generations and generations, all the people of the nation called Israel were um, enslaved. They were made to be slaves and oppressed in a land that wasn't their own. There was nothing they could do about it. They were just living their lives under somebody else, and it would be a life of misery and eventually death. They needed saving. And one day God stepped into the world uh, in his miracles and by giving Moses great power to actually do for them what they couldn't do. And he rescued them out of slavery. And when we pick up with Israel in today's passage in Exodus chapter 17, that is all in the past. That is done. They have been rescued from slavery in Egypt. And that has happened. There's no going back. The Egyptian king, the Egyptian army, they're all defeated, and everything should be going fine. They've got the past rescue of God, and God's also promised them that he'll take them away from Egypt and into a land that will belong to them, their own land, where they'll be at peace from their enemies, they'll be secure, and there'll be abundance. So on the one hand, Israel have got the past and the promises, and things should be fine, and yet Whenever we meet this Israel, their daily experience is one of struggle as well. Sometimes that struggle is so severe, so intense, that it might spell the end of all things for them. They might just be tempted to give up. But in this struggle, God is teaching them something they need to learn. And we're going to see that in Exodus 17 today. In that struggle, they're going to learn it doesn't depend on you. 
Um, when I go home, one of the things that I enjoy to do um, to let my hair down and rest a little bit will be playing on my games console. Um, but I don't get to do that so much these days anymore because I've got two young children, four and a half and two. Um, and you can't really play a games console along with them. If they haven't got, you know, their thumbs can't quite reach the buttons and everything, you can't really play along with them. But then I had this bright spark one day that I've got a Nintendo Wii, and they can play on that. If you don't remember the Nintendo Wii or you've never come across it, um, it's one where instead of it being all based on pushing buttons, it's swinging the controller. So I've started to do this, to play with our four-and-a-half-year-old and to play this game with her on the Nintendo Wii, where we are doing a sword fight. It's not a gory sword fight, it's a fun one. And she's there with her controller, and she swings her controller, and it's a duel. So it's me against her, and we're stood on this platform, and we try and knock each other off. So she swings her controller, she's swinging her sword, and I'm swinging mine, and in round one, she wins. But then in round two, I win. <clears throat> and it all comes down to round three. We're stood on the platform, we're swinging our controllers with our swords, and the clock is ticking, and with two seconds left on the clock, she swipes my legs from underneath me, and I go falling off that platform and land in the water. And she wins, and she loves it, and she's delighted. Well, one day, she's going to learn that I let her win. <laughs> one day, she's going to learn that it wasn't her skill or her timing, not yet anyway. Um, but what it all depended on was whether I've decided to let her win. Because you see, I know that there's a defend button. <laughs> And I know that there's an attack button. And I've been playing this game a lot more than she has. And if I wanted to, I could be winning. So she does actually have to fight hard. She still has to swing her sword. She still has to do every bit of effort she can. But ultimately, the outcome doesn't depend on her. It depends on me. Now, in our passage, Israel are plunged into a struggle, into a sword fight. And the truth is, they really do have to fight they really have to spend all the effort they have fighting against the Amalekites. But they're going to come to discover that in all of their efforts and achievements, the victory never depended on them. In fact, in today's passage, the victory depends on Moses. What's happening when we get to verse 8 is that Israel are in the middle of traveling through a desert on their way to the promised land. And remember, at this point, um, they're just migrating refugees. They have only ever been in slavery, and now they've only ever been wandering to get to the place they want to go. And they're ambushed by a violent tribe called the Amalekites. Now, Israel don't have a kind of a defense army. They don't have horses and chariots and spears and uh, battle armor. It's going to be pretty grim. Maybe they've only just got makeshift weapons or stolen weapons. It's going to be pretty grim when they're attacked and put straight into the heart of battle. And yet, by verse 13, you'll find that Israel have won the battle. So this could be a story of the underdog coming out and winning. It could be a story of Israel's strength and their bravery or maybe a really skillful strategy. But verses 9 to 12 tell a really strange tale of where this battle was really won. Moses, in verse 9, says to Joshua, look, I know we don't have an army, so you've got to just choose some men. Choose like, who you reckon will be good as an army. Improvise some weapons, maybe. Choose some men, and you go and fight against the Amalekites. And then, weirdly, he says, tomorrow, I'll stand on top of the hill 
with the staff of God in my hands. Now, you might be forgiven for thinking, okay, great, thanks, Moses. And when you're done faffing up there, you can come down and take a sword in your hand and actually do some of the real work of battle. But Moses understands the lesson that Israel are going to learn from this, and that is whether they can survive this journey all the way to the promised land never depends on them. Because it was all part of God's plan to take them from Egypt to the promised land. And it's all God's promise that they'll get there. It all depends on God. So Moses goes up the hill to depend on God, to lean on God, to count on God. And God shows him that this is what is going on, that this is true, this is right. Because when Moses lifts up his hands with the staff in his hand, and actually says in verse 9, notice he says it's the staff of God. As if Moses doesn't even think that stick is his, but this is God's stick. So he's holding it up almost like a, like a banner, like ancient armies would go out to battle under a banner, the banner of the king, the flag of the king that says who they belong to. Well, when Moses lifts up the staff of God as a banner, Israel are winning. God is fighting for them. And when he lowers it, in verse 11, the people are losing. But notice, this means at this point... The victory does not depend on the strength or skill of the people who are fighting, does it? All of a sudden, at this point, the victory depends on Moses. And whether he has got the ability to stand there at the top of a hill, lifting up his stick. The hope of Israel in the battle, that the battle's being fought down on the plain, but the victory is going to be won. The hope of Israel is all on this tiring old man with his arms outstretched. And as Israel come to reflect on this afterwards, they are going to be learning to rely on God and set their hope on the man on the hill. And as Moses stood between the people and God, as he stood there, in a strange way, it's, it's that he's taking on the burden of the battle on himself. He's taking on the pain of the battle on himself as he tires He's doing something painful. He's doing something that he really can't do on his own. He himself doesn't have the strength to see that through. In the end, he gets so tired that um, he needs some people to come there and prop him up on a stone and physically hold up those hands. So Israel win the battle, and when they come to reflect on it, they'll learn that just as being rescued from Egypt never depended on them, so victory in that struggle, it doesn't depend on them. The battle they are part of is happening and they have to fight. But the victory in that battle doesn't depend on them. Whenever they face something that could end it all there and then, they're always going to need help. They need God's help and they need a mediator. That is somebody who's going to stand between them and God and lift up the stick like a banner. Now, maybe to Israel, as they learn this, it's a comfort to them. Because maybe the weak and the discouraged among them, they'll feel like the burden's lifted off their shoulders now. They know that they can press on with hope and faith, knowing that as long as they've got God on their side and as long as they've got a mediator who will stand with his arms outstretched, well, God's got them. Or maybe they'll be um, humbled by this. Maybe this is going to confront the pride of those Israelites who thought that by their superior skill, and strength and determination, they'd become heroes. But the bottom line, either way, is that it's not about them. Yes, they struggle. Yes, they fight. They shed blood, sweat, and tears. They're engaged in the battle, but the victory isn't won where they are. 
The victory is won on the hill. And for us, in our struggle, we've got an even deeper and brighter hope than even Moses. Because after Moses, God sent another man to go to the top of a hill with his arms outstretched to win an even greater battle. Because God later would send a true and better Moses, not just to bear the pain of a battle with evil, but to die for our victory. The difference between Moses and Jesus is that when Israel were in the midst of a battle, and when they looked to the top of the hill, to the man with his arms outstretched, they knew that victory was coming. But there's something wonderful I can tell you today, and that is Jesus is an even better Moses. Because when you look to Jesus at the top of a hill, with his arms outstretched, dying on a cross, we know that victory is not coming. We know that victory is won. See, God had planned to save more than just Israel out of slavery. God had planned to make a way to save every person in the world, not out of physical slavery or a political oppression, but out of a slavery that we carry around with us all the time. Slavery to self-destructive habits. Slavery to be in the grip of our own desire. To have to go where our desires lead us. A slavery to habits of lust. Slavery to the reign of death. The inevitability of death as our master. But God planned to lead anyone who had come out of that. And into a promised land of joy and security and peace and fulfillment. Right at the end of all things. And through Moses, God is teaching us that the pattern of victory over enemies on the way isn't going to come by our own strength. It never depends on us. But we need to set our hope on a mediator, on a man on top of the hill with his arms outstretched. Not because he's bringing the victory, but because he's brought the victory. Because one day God would say the time has come to make the big plan happen, that he would bring the real Moses into the world. And this new Moses would look at the world and not just see Israel under attack from Amalekites, but see all people under attack from spiritual powers. The attack not of people with swords, but attack of Satan with accusations. Satan who persuades you to turn your back on God and give up and walk away from God. Satan who is persuading you to live life your own way, to be your own master, to do what pleases you. Satan who attacks you when he sees that you're not good enough for God. And he tells you that. And he tells you all about the ways that you're not worthy of God. And he lists it. And he he stores it all up and keeps on accusing you. And he accuses you in front of God. Satan who attacks you by saying to God, look, you've got to send this person to hell. God sent a new Moses, a real Moses, a true and better Moses into that battle. Because when Jesus stood up a hill and put his arms outstretched. He didn't have two helpers to hold his hands in place, but he had two nails to nail him to the cross. And as long as Jesus' arms were outstretched, the battle against every spiritual power that attacks you was being fought. And as long as his arms were outstretched, the battle against every spiritual power that attacks you was being won. And every weapon used to attack us was exhausted on Jesus. And every accusation that you can possibly be leveled at you was thrown on Jesus. Until at the end, he said, it is 
finished. The victory has been done. The good news for Israel was they could take heart and look at the exhausted man on the hill and know that if he's there, they're winning. But this pattern is so much more powerful and complete in the real thing, in Jesus. Because the good news is that we look to a crucified man on the hill and know the victory's won. It is done already. Now, if you're new to Christianity, I really uh, appreciate that you've come here this morning. Thanks so much for joining us. And I really do appreciate that you've managed to sit through a talk that began with some ancient Amalekite battle taking place in Rephidim. Maybe that's not what you were expecting. But I really hope that from what I've said, that you've begun to see that the hope Christians have is in Jesus, not ourselves. I hope that has become clear to you. And that I want to point you to the fact that the place you can find answers, the place you can find hope and sustenance is in Jesus. The whole Bible, including this slightly obscure bit in the Old Testament, is pressing you to accept that all our efforts and achievements can't get us anywhere but in Jesus we have everything as long as we set our hope and trust in him and the invitation is always there to do that and in this pattern of Moses uh, Moses helps us to see something more wonderful about Jesus that whatever our struggle to keep going like the things we mentioned at the beginning whether you're struggling with the discouragement from voices outside of us or struggling with the discouragement of your own failure inside you there is no enemy that Jesus hasn't defeated at the cross but what about tomorrow's battles what about tomorrow and when you're plunged into that battle I mean, aren't we back where we began in that tension of knowing that Jesus has done everything, he's completed everything, and yet we still have to step into a battle. We are still in a battle taking the wounds of the slings and arrows of discouragement. Well, that's where I'm glad that Moses isn't our hope. Because one day Moses died, and he never lifted that stick again. But the true and better Moses, Jesus, when he died on the cross, he didn't stay dead. He rose again. And he went into heaven, and he's still alive now. And that gives us the assurance that there is still a man on the hill. In 1992, Arthur White was a world champion powerlifter, but he was into a lifestyle of taking anabolic steroids for his bodybuilding, but that led him into a lifestyle of taking cocaine. He was hooked, um, and so it made sense for him to have... um, Jobs which relied on his power and ability to be violent. He, he was a, a doorman at a nightclub, and during the day, he ran an illegal debt-collecting business. So he never went anywhere without a 12-inch knife strapped to his arm. Arthur White got into an affair with someone who wasn't his wife, and his wife threw him out, away from her and away from the children. And one day, Arthur got a call to sort out some guys And he arrived there and a guy was running away. And Arthur chased after him and took out his knife and he stabbed the man twice and started to cut off the man's ear. Within five years, Arthur White would be clean of drugs entirely. He'd have given up his life of violence. He'd be reconciled to his wife and children and he would have founded an organisation that travels up and down the UK telling young people how great Jesus is. Now, how can that happen unless 
Jesus is still there with his arms outstretched, crushing the powers of evil that are still there. Lucy uh, wasn't a Christian for very long, and she told her parents she was a Christian, and they just thought she would grow out of it. But when they saw that she was pretty serious about her faith, uh, they, they didn't really want her to be bringing that up in conversation with them. In fact, they didn't want to hear anything about uh, Lucy's faith. They didn't want to hear anything about the hope that Lucy had or about what she did on Sundays. In fact, they didn't even want to hear anything about Lucy's church friends. They didn't want her speaking the name of her Christian friends in the house. They started to know less and less about Lucy's life. She was pushed more and more out of the life of her family and her parents. She didn't know what to do because she hadn't been a Christian long and she just really didn't feel like she had any power to be able to like, work a miracle in the situation. She was just discouraged. It would have been far easier for her to give up that struggle. Well, within two years, Lucy's mum and dad and brother were Christians. They'd been baptised and they were planning together as a family how they might invite their neighbours to come to their house on Christmas Day to share some of their faith with them. How can that happen? How can the forces of evil have such a catastrophic defeat unless Jesus is still there with his arms outstretched, crushing those powers of evil? Think of my Lego. In China, pastors are being put into prison for preaching the true gospel instead of a uh, state-censored one. It's happening a lot And yet where churches have their pastors put into prison, and in countries where people don't like churches growing, the church is growing at a faster rate than ever before. How can that happen unless Jesus is still at it, crushing those forces of evil, bringing the victory to his people? The battle is still going, And Arthur White and Lucy and the Chinese pastors and you and I, we still face that battle daily. And sometimes you are going to feel like giving up. But on the cross, Jesus dealt the decisive blow to defeat Satan. The victory is won and it can't be reversed, but Satan still tries to intrude. With his dying breath, he's still trying to wage war on the gospel. Now, our enemies aren't flesh and blood people around us. They're not your colleagues. It's not people like the Amalekites. The Bible says our struggle is a spiritual struggle against those powers that blind Lucy's parents to the truth of the gospel. Powers that discourage you and condemn you and tell you, like Arthur White, you're not good enough because you carry a knife everywhere. All over the world, those powers are losing battles. All over the world, those powers are fading and are dying as the church grows. Struggling and discouraged Christians are keeping going. People all over the world are being brought to worship. You see, Jesus died, but he rose again, and he never died again. And he didn't leave you and I in this battle on Monday morning without him still standing there before God the Father, with his arms outstretched in intercession, praying for us, where we are condemned, lifting that off us. And he is still standing with his arms outstretched in victory as we struggle on the battlefield against the dying and defeated enemies. And in that tension, in that struggle, where you trust in Jesus, but you do find it hard to keep on going, well, in that struggle, 
I want to encourage you to see Moses' story. See the story of the true and better Moses and opt into that posture of faith that looks to the crucified Jesus on the hill with his arms outstretched in death and know that the victory is won. And opt into a posture of faith that looks to the risen Jesus in heaven with his arms outstretched in intercession and in power, bringing every enemy under his feet. If the Israelites could look at Moses there on the hill, lifting up the staff, and they knew victory was coming, they could press on in faith and hope. But we see Jesus on the hill, the true and better Moses. How much more today can we fix our eyes on him and press on in faith and in hope? In the face of the voices that belittle, that condemn, that tempt, that patronize, that discourage and threaten us, In the midst of your struggle, lift your eyes. There is still a man on the hill. 